Here we go. Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I am the founder of 1000 Hours Outside. And I'm so excited to have author Victoria Dunkley here today to talk about her book, Reset Your Child's Brain and all sorts of other things. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Ginny. I'm glad we finally made it. (laughs) Yes, we made it. Kim John Payne is the one who suggested that I reach out to you. And so I really appreciate you taking the time. You are an award-winning integrative psychiatrist. You have been on the Today Show, NBC Nightly News, Investigation Discovery. Your program has helped so many people. So thank you for taking the time to be here. I read your book and I have got, I think, eight pages of notes here. (laughs) It is a phenomenal book. It's called Reset Your Child's Brain, a four-week plan to end meltdowns, raise grades, and boost social skills by reversing the effects of electronic screen time. So before we dive into the meat of the book, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up having this passion? Sure. So I've been practicing for um, a little over 20 years now. And when I first finished my training in uh, my fellowship in child psychiatry, I was working with a lot of kids who were um, in the system, like foster care, residential treatment center care, and they all had a history of abuse or neglect or both. Um, and so all those kids were very prone to being put into fight or flight very easily. So I noticed with those kids that they, if they played even a little bit of video games, they tended to get worse. And conversely, if we just removed video games altogether that they started to get better. And these were very tough cases. I was working with the the highest level of acuity in the state. Um, And then I also had my private practice and I was seeing a lot of kids with tics, anxiety, ADHD, more run-of-the-mill stuff. And those kids didn't necessarily have a history of trauma, but they looked the same. Like they were all kind of in the state of hyperarousal. And so I started to do the same intervention with them, just remove all video games. And I started to notice that no matter what their diagnosis was, they got better. You know, even kids who'd been stuck, who hadn't responded to other treatments. And so I started to kind of formulate this concept that they were all in this state of hyperarousal, overstimulated, and that the frontal lobe was kind of shutting down. And also, because I was seeing so many kids with tics, and I noticed that the video games made their tics worse, I knew it was dopamine-related because tics are dopamine-related. And of course, all of the research shows that now. You know, I think even a lot of lay people know that now, that screen time affects dopamine. But at the time, it wasn't really known. Um, so that's kind of how I started everything. And then um, I, you know, I just was having success in my practice, so I put a little email course on my website. And then, um, you know, I just got responses from all over the world saying that their child had been misdiagnosed or told their child needed medication and they didn't and all sorts of things. So that's what prompted me to write the book. Unbelievable. This was so eye-opening to me. And I've been reading really for the past decade about screens and time outside and finding balance. And Mm -hmm. there were so many things in your book that I had never heard of and that were really eye-opening to me. One of the ones is this concept of interactive versus passive screen consumption. Mm -hmm. And I think we've all bought into the passive screen consumption is bad, don't be lazy, but if the Mm -hmm. kids are interacting, if they're building something on Minecraft, this is more worthy of their time. Yes. I mean, I had that misconception until I read your book this year. Yes. So this is such an important thing. The difference between, inter- so now I'm more a, a prone to like, let's watch a movie together. Yes. Which is opposite of what I would have thought. And I think opposite kind of of what's preached. It's like, well, use, yes. use the screens as a tool for learning. So tell us about what's going on with the passive versus interactive usage. Okay. Yes. This is always my first talking point when I give a talk because it's, it is the, like one of the biggest misconceptions. So basically screen time acts like a stimulant and the interactive screen time is a more potent stimulant. So it is more engaging. That is why advertisers want the interactive component. And it's also kind of what depletes energy, you know, mental energy more quickly mm-hmm. as what fractures attention more, all of those things. But w- what I noticed clinically was that if when I was doing, you know, I started implementing these screen fasts and if I left a little bit of passive screen time in, you know, like a few hours a week of watching a movie or slow paced 
you know, TV, then they were still able to reset. But if we left a little bit of interactive screen time in, like, you know, say just once a week of video games, they didn't reset the same way. Wow. And then when I started really diving into the research as I was writing the book, you know, lo and behold, there was research or there is research on interactive screen time causing more issues with sleep, cognition, memory, mood regulation, all of those things. Um, But it is really interesting because even researchers say what you're saying. You know, they say, well, we don't know yet. And there could be this whole, it could be completely different if they're actually learning. But to me, it's the interactive component itself that's dysregulating. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? So you talk about the state of dysregulation. Mm -hmm. And I guess as a parent, you can actually kind of see that, you know, where all of a sudden they're crying because you have to turn it off, that type of Mm -hmm. thing. What's happening internally? So if we think of it as a stimulant, so we don't give kids caffeine, for example. We know it's not good for them. We know it's really not good for kids who have attention issues. So it's basically the same thing. The minute they start engaging with the screen, it's it's highly stimulating. It's very engaging. They're locked in. You get all these a rush of dopamine. So it's unnaturally stimulating. Hmm. So you get this rush of dopamine and, and you get this the activation of arousal. So you get this fight or flight system is activated, but at the same time, they're staying still. So it's kind of like this mismatch of energy from an evolutionary point of view. So when, when we get fight or flight, we're supposed to be able to discharge that energy by running away or fighting mm. or freeze, but freeze doesn't <laughs> discharge the energy. Um, so instead, the child's just sitting there. So they get this hyperarousal while they're staying still. So then when you stop it, and also when you stop, it's very sudden. Right. The other thing that was informed my work was that at that time, 20 years ago, we still used a lot of short-acting stimulants like Ritalin for ADHD. And you could see the same thing. You know, It would work really well when they were on it. And then as soon as it wore off, they were crying. And mm-hmm. just like when a child comes off a video game or a, the phone or whatever. So we know that abrupt stimulant and then drop. The brain's not meant to handle it. It should be smoother and more natural. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of things that are happening in the brain. It's everything from brain chemistry to the body clock, electrical activity is increased, the stress hormones are higher. And we know also that interactive screen time causes more weight gain because it raises cortisol more. And then of course, there's all the issues with the body clock. One of the interesting things that I realized as I was reading all the research is that when the body clock is thrown off, which is it's thrown off by not just screen time before bed, but screen time throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And even if you block the blue light, it's still melatonin is still suppressed. It's just not suppressed as much. Hmm. So all these things that people do like, oh, just as long as you don't have screen time an hour before bedtime, or as long as you block the blue light, it's okay. It's still dysregulating. Wow. But when you alter the body clock and the, um, you know, we're supposed to have this kind of nice sine wave for arousal. And then when you go to sleep, it's lower and then it comes back up. Everything's kind of getting flattened out because we're overstimulated mm. during the day. And then at night, you're not going into that deep sleep. So then the next day, you're tired and you seek more stimulation. Wow. When that happens, serotonin is depleted. Mm. So then we get this state where, the child is depressed and anxious or agitated. And we know, you know, I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but we know, you know, there's a suicide crisis going on right now. And one of the things that happened when we look at, you know, postmortem studies of the brains of people who've committed suicide, their serotonin is very, very low wow. in their nervous system. And the same thing with homicide, very, very low. Hmm. Both of those things are occurring right now. So I feel like all of those things are related to people, you know, young people over-consuming screen time at unprecedented rates and their brain chemistry is just completely out of whack. Wow. But, you know, it's not doom and gloom because you offer a solution and a four-week one. At that, (laughs) things can change rapidly. And this is leading to a lot of misdiagnosis. So what are some of the things that are getting misdiagnosed? Pretty much every psychiatric diagnosis can be misdiagnosed. And when I say misdiagnosed, it may be a true misdiagnosis, or they may have that diagnosis, but it's made a lot worse. Mm -hmm. So um, ADHD, this is what, you know, when I, my son is in just finished kindergarten and when I look, when I volunteered in his classroom, I was like, whoa, (laughs) 
it looks like, you know, all these kids look like they have, especially the boys, look like they have ADHD. You know, they can't focus. They're very impulsive. They're five. They're five, <laughs> but and they're slamming their bodies around. But if you're mm-hmm. disruptive in the classroom, that easily can get misdiagnosed as ADHD. So that was a big one. Ticks. We saw a big increase in ticks during the pandemic, but ticks were on the rise even before that. So that's a big one too. Even bipolar disorder, because some of these kids will have rages, um, not just after they're They've gotten off a screen, but just in general, they have rages and that can be, you know, a five-year-old or it can be a 15-year-old. So those kids might get diagnosed as bipolar disorder. And then we're seeing kids be diagnosed with depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder. There's a very strong link between screen time and obsessive compulsive uh, symptoms. Wow. It's a lot. And that used to be kind of a rare diagnosis, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of the anxiety disorders, OCD was relatively rare and now it's pretty common. Wow. It's a lot. There's a lot going on. And you explain a whole lot of it in the book. One of the things I think that people tend to think is that video games can help improve attention. So you're talking about a five-year-old, you're talking about school, Mm -hmm. talking about attention. You know, people will say, well, don't video games improve their attention? They can sit there for three hours and do a video game. What would you say to that parent or guardian? So when we see that, it's like saying, you know, a mouse is going to learn a maze faster if they're put on cocaine. You know, if you give the mouse cocaine, they're going to learn the maze faster. So just because someone can sit there and focus doesn't mean that what's going on is good for them. Mm -hmm. And what we see over time is that video games clearly, we know over time, make attention worse. So basically, Mm -hmm. video games teaches you how to play a video game. So they get better at playing a video game or doing something on a screen. So that kind of attention might, you know, they might test higher than another child. And interestingly, a lot of the tests that look at attention, they're testing with using a computer screen. They're not testing in the real world, like how Mm -hmm. do you do a math problem or how do you sit there and try to read a book? You know, they don't test that way because they can't track it (laughs) as easily. It's a conundrum. Yeah, exactly. You know, parents could really do this research on their own in their own home. You will see a huge difference in attention span and ability to sit there, focus, keep track of things, you know, like keeping track of their coat or keeping track of where their school things are. Um, All of those things improve. Those are all executive functioning things. And you see those improve really within a couple of weeks. Wow. When you take kids off screen. Wow. I feel like that's the best way for parents to really take it in and appreciate the the impact on attention. Mm -hmm. Well, an executive function is a big thing that people are talking about. And you also say when you're talking about attention, that if a child, you say when a child reports finding non-screen activities boring, that's a red flag. The brain has become used to these high levels of stimulation. So that's a really interesting part for parents to be aware of. But when you talk about executive function, can you just explain what that is and how attention is related to executive function? Yes. So attention is a component of executive functioning. So executive functioning is getting things done, prioritizing, working memory, being able to hold things in your head while you're doing something else, Mm -hmm. kind of big picture things like planning, getting homework done, things like that being able to find things, being organized. And so that's suffering. If the attention is suffering, then that executive functioning is also suffering, which is just important for making it through life. Exactly. The book talks a lot about light and really interesting information. Okay, I had never really thought about, and this is maybe a silly thing, never thought about how our eyes interact differently with a two-dimensional screen than they do in a three-dimensional world. I would love to know a little bit more about the eyes. You know, you talk about that they're connected to our central nervous system. So from Mm -hmm. that one aspect, just that one piece of our eyes and our eye health and how that relates to our whole body, what's going on when we're on a two-dimensional screen? So, I mean, one thing is that when it's two-dimensional, you're not going near and far, you know, back and forth as you would if you were outside. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is... There's something about being outside where you can gaze really far away and there's the back and forth near and far, especially far, I think, that is regulating to the nervous system and it and it different pathways are activated. But also just in terms of learning, it's completely different from learning on a two-dimensional. And I would, you know, say the screen is even more two-dimensional than like a page or something like that. You're still getting some three-dimension if you're looking at a book. Right. So there's something about the 2D that doesn't activate the same 
pathways in the brain. So we know that like, for example, if you're reading on a screen, you read more slowly and your comprehension is not as good. So if they Mm -hmm. test somebody, even adults who've read something electronically, they're not going to test the same and their performance isn't going to be as good. And they don't do as much deep reading. Wow. But then also in terms of the eye muscles, you know, we're seeing all these kids who are nearsighted and it's because of that near far thing again, they're just not using all of their muscles like they should be. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, we're seeing kids who are having more inflammation of the retina. So we're seeing like macular degeneration, which used to only happen in the elderly or at least late middle age. Mm -hmm. Um, We're seeing that now in young people. And that's the number one cause of blindness is macular degeneration. So all of these things, and it just, you know, it's just not natural. So we just have to get away from the things that are unnatural, overly intense. Um, Our nervous system is not meant to handle it. Can it do it? Yes, but we're suffering the consequences. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last minute get together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chop's hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com outside120 for $120 off. Goodchap.com slash outside120 code outside120. It's good to know, I think, as a parent or as a teacher, it's good to know these things because it just helps to increase your resolve to know, to think about it in terms of the 2D, 3D. I mean, that's just a good thing to be aware of that our eyes are meant, like you said, to look all around and our muscles Mm -hmm. are meant to be stimulated. And Mm -hmm. so screens are altering our normal eye movement and our normal eye development. You even talk about it influences the vestibular sense. So we're talking about balance because the eyes are just in this fixed position. The head is in a fixed position yes. so much of the time in childhood. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I've been working with this OT over the past few years and she it's just so interesting. But one of the first things she does is she gets kids on a trampoline and she has them high-fiving and looking up. So she's like, they have to, you know, it has to look up. That's what wow. stimulates the vestibular system. Exact opposite of looking at a screen when they're looking down like this, mm-hmm. you know, just having their head bent like that is the opposite of what should be activated mm-hmm. and being stimulated in childhood. Mm-hmm. And I think to track what's on the screen, you have to stay extremely still. So that's why, you know, kids really are very, very still. And some of the OTs even say it's like, it acts like a restraint, you know, nothing's happening. And we know sitting in general is bad, but I think when you're on the screen, you're even more still. And of course, that's horrible for kids. Right. And it's just, the numbers are shocking. I started writing mm-hmm. about our family getting outside 
and one of the statistics I had read was that kids were outside for four to seven minutes on average, but on screens for four to seven hours on average mm-hmm. on a daily basis. So the numbers are shocking and there's just such a lack of balance there sitting for so long. Eyes are interacting with 2D for such a long time. And then you talk about, and this is really interesting and makes sense, that our brains are designed to respond to visual things. And so the brightness, the color, the contrast, the fast paced, and you talk about what's called the orienting response, that our orienting mm-hmm. response in our brain gets hijacked. Can you explain what the orienting response is? Yes. Yeah, so from an evolutionary point of view, we're attracted to things that helped us survive. So, you know, back in the hunter-gatherer days, if something moved, it might be something that, you know, we could hunt. So you're attracted to something that's moving quickly. Same with bright color. Um, so things that are visually stimulating, we're attracted to um, in terms of finding food and also in terms of mating. So we're, you know, attracted to just, you know, visually stimulating, colorful things. So the engineers and everyone who's creating everything from the way you're, you interact with your phone to the games, to social media, they know uh, all these things about the brain and they hijack them to keep the eyes on the screen. They call it sticky eyeballs. So they want the person on the screen for as long as possible and they want them to come back. So they're little, you know, if you're off the screen too long, they're like, what can we do now? What can we do now (laughs) to get it back on? So all of those things are hijacked on purpose to keep us there. So it's very, it's not realistic, especially for a child when we say, well, they have to learn how to regulate their use. If you think about how the brain's being hijacked, it's like nearly impossible. I mean, it's impossible for adults, even me, who I'm so, 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 so aware, and I I don't feel good when I'm on my screen a lot. Like, I still struggle, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's meant to be addicting. Right. You say in here to try and have no interactive screen device until 12, and after that, only sparingly. I think it's good. I think it's really good to have those markers there so that at least people are aware. One of the things that was in here that I hadn't heard about and it was super interesting was the left brain, right brain piece of it. And you write because screen time is information packed, it tends to overstimulate mm-hmm. the left and understimulate the right, which makes us feel more fragmented and less connected. True, right? So yes. So then you talk about, well, if you've been in that spot where you've been overstimulated on your left side of the brain, what are some right brain things that you can do to help get back on track? That's a great question. I forgot that I'd written about that. <laughs> so right brain things are like connection. So bonding is right brain, music, physical activity, things that are holistic, movement, dancing, you know, all of those things are right brain. Thinking um, in terms of concepts versus information, abstract thinking, meditation, all of those things activate the right side. And also when you activate the right side, it integrates the whole brain, not just the right side. So the right side is kind of like the holistic brain part, Mm -hmm. whereas the left side is more just like, yeah, like information, like the processing, processing, processing. You know, it it just gives you extra motivation to find those right brain things. I mean, you even talk Mm -hmm. about exposure to nature and sunlight is one of the ways being actively involved in a three-dimensional environment. I love just this list. It's on page 267 for whoever wants to pick up the book and write these down, put them on a note card, human interaction, being cared for, caring for other people, feeling competent, using all of your senses. This is going to help balance out what's happening in our world with this heavy use of screens. And some kids, some situations, depending on what stage of life, the kids maybe have to use the screens for their schoolwork or something like that. And so to know that these right brain activities can help to balance things out is such a valuable tool. What do you say to parents who complain or ask about screens and schoolwork? Yeah, it's a big problem. I always say, you know, I always ask the school or the teacher, what can you get rid of? So sometimes there's extra screen time going on that's used as a reward or reinforcer. Always ask if there's paper alternatives that the child can be doing or hands-on alternatives. You can ask if homework can be done on paper and not have to be turned in. So one of the things that um, that I always stress is that light at night is linked to depression and even suicidality. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense for us to be forcing kids to use the computer at night to turn in their homework. 
Now, granted, they're doing a lot of other things too. So it takes them four times longer than it needs to, but it's just not fair for us to be asking them to try to be efficient with their time and just get it done and not get distracted by all these other things. Mm -hmm. Because again, you know, it's just not a fair fight. So, you know, I always tell parents, especially if their child is depressed or anxious, to try to get rid of the homework. And I've even had parents, if the school says, no, we can't do it, the parent just says, well, I'm not doing it then. If they don't get it done at school, it's not getting done. And I've Mm -hmm. seen that actually work. And I've actually seen kids' grades go up when they do that. So we really, uh, to me, you know, we need to prioritize mental health first and then everything Mm -hmm. else follows. Oh, yes. You had such an important statement in here. I hope I bolded it at the beginning and I can easily find it. You say, when we're concerned about our child's future career, which we all are because the world is changing so rapidly, you say, always put mental health first. Always put health first. Yes. The health comes first. It does. Mm -hmm. It does. You can't have a successful child who doesn't have a sense of well-being, who isn't feeling well, they're not going to perform well. And of course, nobody really, you know, everybody wants their child to be healthy and happy first. But we get so sucked into the pressure. And, you know, the ed tech companies know that. They know those vulnerabilities in parents. They specifically target, well, your child's going to be left behind if they don't know this. They're not like completely tech savvy. They're not, they're going to be left behind. If they don't learn these skills now and putting in hours a day learning it now, they're going to be left behind. So parents freak out about that. But the child who'll be left behind is the child who can't function, who can't focus, who can't get things done, who doesn't feel well, who can't, who has trouble making eye contact, who has trouble having face-to-face conversation. Those are the kids who are going to be left behind. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, another thing that put parents here is um, if they don't learn it early, that they're going to be behind. Mm -hmm. But we know that's not true. We know that that technology is meant to be user-friendly dummy proof. We know that animals can use an iPad. Like it's, it's not difficult. <laughs> right. Right. So when school, when the school says, well, they need to learn how to, you know, to use it. Well, the, the school wants them to learn how to use these things to, because they're assessing them on the mm-hmm. devices. So they're collecting the data and they need to, you know, teach to the test or whatever, but don't worry about a child being behind on learning how to use a smartphone or an iPad or something, because they're going to learn it in five minutes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't worry about that. And we also know that in terms of wages, that reading and math scores are predictive of wages, but technology use is not predictive, except for the extremely high end of maybe programming or something like that. That might be predictive. But in terms of technology skills in general, it's not predictive. Only reading and math skills are predictive. And that's those are skills that are much harder to learn. Well, and it's interesting, I think as a parent, our oldest is 15, just turned 15. And for the past five or six years, maybe even a little bit longer, there was a really big push on coding. And I felt as a parent, mm-hmm. you know, I should be making sure he's learning how to code and should I be doing these different programs for coding? And he didn't, he wasn't interested. So he didn't really do that. And now what they're saying is that the computers are going to do the code itself. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we get pushed into these things that won't matter in the end. And like what you're saying is that a healthy person Someone who has good executive functioning skills can adapt to the changing markets and that that's what's going to help them with their careers more than any of these other things that were sort of sold. And I liked what you even talked about cursive writing. Mm-hmm. Cursive writing is helping with the stimulation of the brain and hand-eye coordination and printing and all of these tactile, analog, maybe people would use that word, analog things mm-hmm. are helping our kids. So we just, we've got to get yes. back to that. There's a whole world of research on the hand-brain connection and how printing and specifically cursive, but it, you know most schools don't even teach that anymore. But just printing in general, we know that there's something about the muscles in the hand and printing, and that's another 3D thing that stimulates more of the brain. More of the brain lights up. Um, and also you remember the material better and more deeply. You make more connections when you're taking notes by hand. So there's also a, you know, a push for kids who have difficulty with handwriting, especially boys. There's a big push to put them on a laptop as soon as possible so that they don't struggle. And that's the mm-hmm. opposite of what we should be doing. They should keep working on it. They will get better at it. It's just practice. Right. Or these, you know, the concept of being a visual learner. Well, we're all visual learners. So that doesn't mean that we ignore the auditory. The auditory is really the skill that needs to be strengthened mm. in terms of focus. So there's all these 
buzz, you know, these terms that are thrown out all the time in education that are really misconceptions and they're driven by the ed tech industry. So interesting. I bring this up quite a bit. So people listening might be like, stop saying this. <laughs> but there, <laughs> is, there was this teacher, John Taylor Gatto, who was a, a New York State teacher of the year, you know, in decades past. And he's written some different books about education. But one of the things he says is that it only takes 50 hours to reach functional literacy. So by that, he means at the right age and stage, it will take 50 hours for a child to learn everything they need to learn about reading, writing, and math in order to be able to learn anything that they ever want to learn. Interesting. <laughs> and so it's one of those things that none of us are going to just spend 50 hours on our child's education, but it is eye-opening to say, look, if they're not getting it in seven hours of instruction in a school day of 35 hours of instructional time in a week, I would agree with you. Skip the homework. Mm -hmm. And people do not like that. They don't like, and you don't have to be rude about it. You know, um, yeah. people don't love that. But I would tend to agree with you that kids need that time to romp around and to play and to get bored and to do all of those things that help them as a whole child. It's like we have covered the seat work piece. That's covered. You know, there's exactly. so much time going toward that. But there's not as much time going toward all these other things that you're talking about, the utilization of all of the senses, the community aspect. And that's coming out with the social skills. So you talk about how if we have poor social skills, we're going to have a hard time getting ahead in life. And that screen time mm -hmm. creates a false experience of ease and success. So can we talk about the relationship between screen time and social skills and community and what's going on with that? Yes. One thing is that when you're in a state of hyperarousal, it's harder to make eye contact because mm -hmm. if you're in that fight or flight state, eye contact is a threat. So you can see it in kids. I mean, in young people in general, they have harder time making and maintaining eye contact. But you see, especially right after someone's been on a screen for a long time, they really have trouble making eye contact. And you can see that in kids very easily. Um, so that's one thing. Um, another thing is just face-to-face -face conversations like we know that face-to-face -face conversation predicts reading, writing, and speaking skills. So when people are just, you know, having conversations behind a screen or on a headset or whatever, they're not developing those same skills. So you see, especially for shy kids or kids um, who are, you know, may, who are on the spectrum or something like that, they get better at those things by practicing. Mm -hmm. And before, adolescence was a time of awkwardness and we were just forced to interact and feel awkward and then you get through it, you know? It's not fun, but we get through it. But now they're not forced to put in those hours and hours and hours of socializing. So they're not really getting better at it. So, and I have some kids who are super smart, and but they're on the spectrum and they're having trouble getting jobs, even though they, their skills might be there. They're having trouble getting jobs because of those social skill deficits. Mm. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why. I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I wanna make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and 5 free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. 
Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Well, you write that real life is so much more difficult than these screens. And so Mm -hmm. it is such a good point that I think in some ways we try and shield our kids from awkward, hard things. But when that's embedded in life, then that helps you in the long run. And it really adds up. There was, you know, throughout Mm -hmm. our childhoods, so much of that time that was there. And now there's so much less. You wrote, and I thought this was such an interesting thing. The book really helps to reframe a lot of these things that I think many of us think, like the interactive versus passive. You know, all of these things that we're thinking or the ed tech piece, right? Our kids are going to get left behind. There's all of these pieces of information swirling around that I think the majority of people might think. And one of them is I have to let my child be on the screen or their social life is going to suffer. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a huge one. So First, if I'm trying to do the reset, I try to just focus on those four weeks and say, okay, it's just four weeks. They're going to survive. So what happens, though, is because they're shifted out of that hyperarousal state, their ability to engage is so much more natural and they engage with ease more. There's Mm -hmm. just more of a flow. Um, They're smiling more, everything. So you can see that their social skills improve right away. And of course, you really want to start with the family, the family unit and the parent-child relationship. That's what's protective. So if they're socializing more with the parents because they're off the screen, that's a good thing. Not that they shouldn't have friends, especially you know in adolescence, but there's too much focus on the peer group being their tribe and not the family being the tribe. You know, a hundred years ago, the family was a tribe until they were young adults in their twenties. Now we see these kids who the peer group is their tribe, and then they still are in the home until they're you know their failure to launch and living in the mom's basement. We know that they'll mature more if they're off the screen. So the other thing that happens though, it's really interesting, is that you know, a lot of kids say they feel relief from not, especially with social media, for not having to like constantly be checking and liking and whatever they're doing. And they can feel their anxiety levels dissipate and the pressure. So a lot of kids comment on that. And sometimes even kids will say, Mom, can you just say that my phone's taken right now so that I don't have to do this, you know, after they after they notice the difference in themselves. Wow. But also following the screen fast depending on what happens, you know, because a lot of parents are see such a big difference that they're like, okay, we're just going to get rid of at least video games or at least social media or at least YouTube or whatever. So they'll still get rid of stuff. And then then you kind of see what friends, wh- who are the true friends? Because mm. the, the good friends will be like, okay, well, this that's what that what's going on with them. And we're, we're just going to work around it. So that, you know, different families and different friend groups handle it in different ways, but people get creative and they figure out how to communicate just like we did, you know, well, we used to call, I've talked about yeah. this a few times, but when you would call a friend, you would really be calling the family. You'd be calling right. a family phone that you don't know who was going to answer. And you would have to have maybe a couple seconds or maybe a minute or two of awkward conversation with someone's mom, <laughs> someone's brother, you know, and then before right. you got to talk to that person and that whole piece of life is just completely gone. But kind of fun to bring that back. I think that's such a good point. Yeah. And I like your point about be the parent that allows yourself to be the one that's blamed, I guess, that gives your Mm -hmm. kids the out. We've had that situation before where someone is texting and it's too much. So we will say, well, just tell them you're not allowed to be texted past a certain amount of time. It's your family rule. Or you're not allowed to be texted more than X amount of times a day. And it gives the child a relief and they want that. They so mm-hmm, badly mm-hmm. want to be able to get out of the situation, but it's hard to. So just blame it on the parent. My mom says I can't do that. And it really helps. And the statement here is, I've never seen a child's social life suffer from, res- 
restricting screen time. If anything, the opposite happens. Never seen it. Never seen it. You've worked for decades with family after family after family and never once seen a child's social life suffer from restricting screen time. It's a huge statement. This book is just filled with practical, eye-opening information. Sometimes the child, especially teenagers, will say, will tell the parent, I don't know what's going on. And they'll say, I'm the only one that doesn't have a smartphone, for example, or something like that. But we know that's not true. Um, so sometimes the, you know, the, the teen is trying to work the parent and wear them down. But in actuality, they're still socializing. They're still going to things. They're still, you know, their social life is not suffering. And I just, um, a friend of mine is a middle school teacher and she was just saying the same thing. She said, the parents always come to them and say, well, I don't want my only, my child to be the only one who doesn't have a smartphone. And she's like, they're not, trust me. So and so and so and so and so and so. Like there's a kind of a growing push to to not for kids that don't have a smartphone. So I think, what I'm hoping is happening is that it's becoming more acceptable to really delay, delay, delay giving the smartphone. Mm-hmm. But yes, in actuality, yeah, I have not seen that ever. Not you know, a child be ostracized, or you know, maybe they maybe they might get teased or something like that. But it's not like you're imagining, and mm-hmm. certainly not. You know, the kids are very dramatic about it, but. It's not, doesn't actually happen. And I can think, you could think of your role as a parent as being one that permeates. So if you make the decision in your house that when people come over, when friends come over, we put our phones in a basket. Or when Mm -hmm. we go on vacation, I actually just talked to this guy who runs this adventure center in Moab, Utah. And he says, when their family goes on vacation, he says, we don't bring our phones. And so, you know, the kids are teens and they're in their early 20s. So they have to tell their friends, you're not going to hear from me for six days. We're going to be out of town. But that's setting a precedent. And it's allowing other people to envision, well, I could do my life that way. And it's giving kids those experiences. So I think you can be the parent that influences actually in a pretty meaningful way, I think, depending on how you set up your life and your family. And just to know, a child's social life never suffers from screen limitation. And since we're talking about parenting, this is a really big one. Um, And we have done this. A lot of people use screens as a reward. Mm -hmm. And they say, this is the only thing, this is the only motivator that works. How do you respond to that? Yes. And I even did that, you know, when I was, you know, 20 years ago, when I first started working with these kids, I was like, oh, this is like a huge motivator. We can get them to do anything. This kid is really difficult. We can get them to, you know, do their homework or whatever. Um, And then I started realizing it was backfiring. It does work again, because it's such a stimulating dopamine releasing thing. But pretty much everybody who works in this space, um, either with tech addiction or just screen management in general, we've all kind of come to the same conclusion to not use it as a reinforcer. Because one th- one of the things that happens is then they're fixated on on that instead of doing things internally. Mm-hmm. So you really want, you know, if you read the self driven child, they talk about internal motivation and not having everything be rewarded. So if you do use a reward, it should be something like, we're going to do this together, or it's going to be a special outing or a special dinner or, you know, something like that, Mm -hmm. um, rather than screen time. Mm -hmm. That's good. Really good advice. Can we wrap up with this thought about unstructured play and One of the big things is that Dr. Peter Gray talks about this, that we're really just losing time. That's one of the biggest things that's happening for our kids because so Mm -hmm. much of the day, and you write about it in your book, you say children are in school mostly sitting for seven plus hours a day, and then they are typically given anywhere from a half hour to three hours of homework each night. That is an exceptional amount of time. 10 hours of a day. It's like, we don't work for 10 hours. Our work day is eight and usually you get a lunch (laughs) break. You know, we're we're expecting these kids to do this 10 hours of work. When, like I said, that John Taylor Gatto, when he talks about that 50 hours, he says there is ample evidence to show that this is not needed, this amount of time, that kids need a lot of time for themselves. So what's happening, and people use unstructured, although they use self-structured, I like that word too, they're structuring their own play. There really is some structure to it. But what is happening for kids when they're allowed to have time for structuring their own play? So that is when we see kids really tap into their creativity. You know, there's a lot of brain work going on when the child has unstructured play. It is really hard to carve out time 
I mean, everything's just so busy. There's and and the other thing that parents feel pressure about is to put them in all these activities, and you know they need to learn piano. They need to well, sports. Of course, I feel like they should be doing. But there's a lot of or learning. You know, a second language. There's so much pressure to like be doing all these other things too, which are all good things. Um, but it makes the schedule so busy that the child doesn't have that unstructured play. And that is where a lot of the learning like solidifies, new connections are made, they learn problem solving, they're creating something, forget about creating something on Minecraft. If they're creating a, you know, a building using stuff in the living room, that is much more creative and brain building than anything they can do on a screen. And also you, it helps with regulation. So you can see kids kind of, you know, they're very stressed out and anxious and agitated. And then you see them, everything kind of smooths out and they calm down as they've been playing for a while. So mm-hmm. I think that is really important. It's, it's so hard to carve out now, but I think the homework piece is huge. I think there's so much research on homework, not making, you know, any difference or if anything, it makes things more stressful. I used to write prescriptions for no no homework all the time for my <laughs> patients in my practice. It's in your book. Yes. Yeah, so you have yeah. a doctor's note. <laughs> Oh, that's, yes. that's so good. I love that. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, if you, if you just ask the pediatrician to say, could you just write my son, you know, my child a note about this? And a lot of the pediatricians will be like, sure, why not? You know, let's see what happens. So even if you don't, even if a child doesn't have like formal accommodations, you can always ask and always ask again and again and again if they say no, because a lot of times they have a knee jerk response and say no. But then if you keep talking about it and kind of explain your reasoning and saying, well, can we just try it, you know, do it as a trial and make, as long as their scores aren't dropping or their mm-hmm. um, learning isn't suffering, like why not? Mm-hmm. So it could be learning experience for the teachers too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the doctors. Well, it's interesting yeah. going back to what you talked about at the beginning You're saying in the book, this discharges pent up energy. That's what you're saying. It's like you do see that with a child. Once they have time, they sort of meld into their environment. They become calmer. They're happier. Mm -hmm. They're discharging that pent up energy. And I'd never thought about how if you're playing a video game. And I read in Glow Kids by Dr. Nicholas Carderis that the video games are meant to spike your blood pressure to really high levels. It's like 180 over 120. And if it doesn't get there within a couple minutes, the designers are going back to the drawing board. So it's meant to make you in this state of fight or flight. But Mm -hmm. then like you said, you can't discharge it. And so this unstructured play is giving kids a chance to let that go and to reset. So they really have to have the time for it. I liked how you said, I mean, this is such a great book, Victoria. And I'm so glad that Kim John Payne told me about it. You wrote right in here, all parents without exception must deal with the doubts and skepticism of others. That's a big statement. It's true. Yeah. Because what you're saying is in a lot of ways we are called, we are, once we know this information as a parent, as a guardian, as a teacher, it is our responsibility to create a world that puts our children's health first. And when you know these things, you do sometimes stand out or people feel judged because of your decisions. Maybe we're delaying video games, we're delaying the smartphone, but you just lay it right out there. You say, look, we all have to deal with that. And so I like that you touch on the science, you touch on all of the information that we talked about, but then you also touch on the practical parenting and you just say it like it is, like like you're going to have to deal with it. And I would imagine that you have had so many people that have come through your practice, so many responses to your course, so many responses to the book where parents have said, I did stick out. It was awkward, but I'm so glad I did it. Right. Absolutely. And even, you know, kids who some families, if they kept their kids pretty screen free until they were adults and then later on, the adult children will say, you know, I thought I felt like it was hard during that time, but I'm so glad that you did that, mom. I mean... That says it all. And I think sometimes parents will say like, oh, you know, we're the only ones that don't do this. And my kids' friends say that I'm the psycho mom. Mm-hmm. And I say like, that's just that take it as a compliment. Like you're just doing what you know is right. And, you know, sometimes other parents, they might feel criticized by other parents. Mm-hmm. I haven't even really seen that, but I think parents do talk about that. But that's because it's creating anxiety in the other parents. Right. They're saying, oh my gosh, what am I doing to my kids? So then they might react negatively to you. Mm-hmm. Like you must be the wrong one. Otherwise I'm doing something that's not good for my kid. Mm-hmm. So try to you know, remember that too, that if you do hear negativity, that that's where that's coming from. That can be helpful. Mm-hmm. 
But I do think there is, you know, a growing number of parents who are looking at this. And I think the awareness now of screen time effects in general, at least what I'm seeing in my son's school, like there are definitely parents who are aware and who try to, um, or who are introducing these things early. And mm-hmm. so I think it's much easier to find those people now. Right. But you just, you do have to talk to other parents. But if you can't find those people, you still just keep learning and reading and then you'll feel, you'll know that you're, mm-hmm. you're doing the right thing. It does. It does help with your resolve to pick up a book like yours that has so much robust information in it and so much encouragement, so many great stories of families that have changed things just by getting rid of the phrases electronic screen syndrome, stepping away from this dysregulation. I got more out of the book than I was expecting. And I think then that's that's a good type of book to read. You know, when you like, because, you know, we have a limited amount of books that we can read in our life. And I got so much out of this one. It's Reset Your Child's Brain, a four-week plan to end meltdowns, raise grades, and boost social skills by reversing the effects of electronic screen time. I think it's one every parent and educator should read. There's so much great information in there from 2015. So uh, things have even changed a lot since then. But there is robust information in here. And Victoria, you have an email course that people could sign up for at drdunkley.com slash video games. Then you have your website, which is resetyourchildsbrain.com. So just a lot of information, author and screen time expert and psychiatrist. So just fantastic things to help families in these tricky times. And they are tricky because they're unprecedented Mm -hmm. and no one's gone through them before. And You've done a phenomenal job of helping with that. So we always end our podcast with the same question. And that question is, what is a favorite memory from your childhood that was outside? Ooh, (laughs) I think um, we used to have this creek that was in a park and we would, um, you know, during those days, we could just go play by ourselves, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but we would all gather there and, you know, jump in the water and just frolic and, it was very free and fun, and um, I, I miss those days. Yeah, it's amazing what sticks out to a child. It doesn't have to be something elaborate, just a little bit of freedom, right. a little mm-hmm. bit of space to play. So, Victoria, I really appreciate your time. I truly, I mean, I have, I take notes on all the books that I read, but this, <laughs> this is a stack for me because there's, <laughs> I got so much out of it. And having read many books prior, I just want to formally say that this book is meaty and it's encouraging and it's eye-opening and it's just one that even if you feel like you shouldn't read it like you should read it because this is information that parents need to know so thank you for the book and thank you for taking this time to be with us thank you Ginny that was really good feedback to hear too like about all the things that you pulled out it's it's good for me to hear that as well Mm -hmm. yeah thank you Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.